Very few people throughout history have made such landmark contributions that they have spawned entire fields of study. So when you have the opportunity to talk with one, you take it. And Gregory Chaitin, co-founder of the field of algorithmic information theory and all-around swell guy, is no exception. Join us as our host, Robert J. Marks, dives deep with Gregory Chaitin into the depths of randomness, information theory, and the unknowable, today on Mind Matters News. There are few people who can be credited without any controversy with the founding of a game-changing field of mathematics. We are really fortunate today to talk to Gregory Chaitin, who has that distinction. Professor Chaitin is a co-founder of the field of algorithmic information theory that explores the properties of computer programs. Professor Chaitin is the recipient of a handful of honorary doctorates for his his landmark work, and as a recipient of the prestigious Leibniz Medal. Professor Chaitin, welcome. Great to be with you today. <laughs> Thank you. Algorithmic information theory. Uh, you know, when people first hear the term, at least at the lay level, their reaction is the field might be pretty dry and boring. Uh, but I tell them that algorithmic information theory, if you understand it, is more mind-blowing than any science fiction I've ever read or watched. So, I hope in our chats that we have, uh, we can convey some of the mind-blowing results bringing out of algorithmic information theory. So uh, before diving in, I, I hope you don't mind if I get a little personal. Your life has changed recently. You have two new children in your life. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Zhuao, and how did I do in the pronunciation? That's a, that's a rough name to pronounce. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually in Spanish, it's Juan, John in English. Juan in Spanish, and the Portuguese pronunciation is a little different. It's more nasal. It's Juan. 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 Okay. It's Juan. Yeah, and Juan Bernardo, who's three, and our little girl is uh, going to be 11 months. Her name is uh, Maria Clara. That's wonderful. Now, this has been a life change for you, hasn't it? Oh, sure. <laughs> for anybody who has children, it's a uh, it's a life change, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, I think we were sharing an email that my I babysit for my grandson, and mm-hmm. uh, when I'm finished, I feel successful if I've kept him alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he gets into all sorts of problems. He likes to pull things down from the shelf on him. He climbs the stairs, and I'm afraid he'll fall down and need intensive care. And it's just uh, it's just one thing after another. So I expect yeah. you've experienced similar stuff, right? You bet. Uh, Actually, now that I'm a father, it seems it seems like a miracle that uh, children survive. <laughs> yes, it really it's amazing. Uh, you know, uh, Leonard Euler, if I remember, when he lost the sight of one of his eyes, came out with a positive statement. He said, "This is good because I have less to distract me from my mathematics." <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I'm sure, but in a much more positive sense, this has kind of distracted you from your intellectual pursuits because because it's not a distraction. It's a wonderful addition to life. But have you found that to be the truth? Um, well, that's a, a good question. Uh, I, I, I've w- worked a lot on mathematics and um, I've sort of done what I had uh, intended to do. Uh, so I, I welcome this new project. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> new project. You know, yeah. I, I, I read Virginia's um, uh, comment in your new book, which we're, we're going to post a, a link to it uh, on the podcast notes. But she said that your children have completed 
uh, your marriage's incompleteness problem. <laughs> I thought that was that was hilarious. That that really cracked me up. Yeah, that was very clever of her, wasn't it? That was very clever. I think that our our audience, much of our audience, might not get the humor in that, but I think as maybe <laughs> as we go on, we can probably get this. It's a joke for logicians. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> so it was. Uh, <laughs> it was funny. It, it cracked me up. I had a yeah. It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful experience uh, having children. Uh, it's true that uh, both of us are older than normal, my wife and I. In my case, substantially older than normal. My wife, not that much. But uh, we wanted very much to have children. And, uh, you know, it's a gift from God. Uh, we managed somehow. That's wonderful. As a doctor said in the middle of the, in the Middle Ages, I believe he said something like, um, I attended the patient and God cured him. So Exactly. In spite of all our efforts, it might not have worked, but we're very happy to have our two little children. It is, it is, yeah, it is wonderful. I think it says in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and boy, that certainly is the case, isn't it? Uh, speaking of youth, you did a lot of amazing stuff in, in your youth. I think you were in the Bronx, New York. Is that right? Well, I, we were living in Manhattan, a very nice location, Madison Avenue, a block from Central Park. Oh, my goodness. In the mid-60s. 68th Street, between 68th and 69th on Madison Avenue, is a, is a very nice neighborhood still. But I think I read you went to the Bronx High School, though, right? I did go to the Bronx High School of Science, which was a treat. And I was also, at the same time, I passed an exam. In my first year at uh, the Bronx High School of Science, I learned that there was something called the Science Honors Program at Columbia University, which was a, a weekend uh, weekend activities uh, for very bright students interested in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And I got in. And um, one of the privileges I got as a result was they gave me the run of the stacks at Columbia University, which is unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. So for example, I was able to hold volumes of the collected works of Euler uh, in my hands. Wow. Yeah. And normal students, I don't think are allowed to go in the stacks. At that time, they weren't. So this was an incredible treat. And another thing that happened was uh, I came up, I was 15, I came up with the idea of uh, program size complexity and defining randomness in an essay question uh, in the exam to get into the, uh, into the science honors program at Columbia University. Interesting. I, I know in your work that you, you looked at things like relativity. This was in your teens, for Pete's sakes, and, and quantum mechanics. And yeah. so what, le what, what led, led you down the path of computer science and to do the, uh, the founding of algorithmic information theory? Well, I was always very interested in computers. They were just uh, starting. At the Columbia Science Honors Program, uh, they, they had a course where the kids uh, could get access to computers. So I started programming in... Um, an assembly language, uh, I think also in Fortran, there, were, uh, there was a, a course given by a nice professor, and they l let the kids run programs on, on big mainframes, which is what we had then. Yes. So I was programming in high school, which at that time was not so, was pretty unusual, right? Yes. Uh, now it's, it's not, I'm sure. So, um, no, I sensed, I, I was reading Scientific American, at first, my mother would read it to me. I was reading it very young. For example, I, I remember vividly a 19, I'm not sure what year it was. Could it be 1958 or 1956 article on Gödel's proof with a fantastic photograph of Gödel where he looks 
sort of angrily at the camera with a blackboard behind him. Oh, yes. And he has that silver streak of hair, I believe. It's possible. And then in 58, I think it was, a book called Ghetto's Proof came out. This was Nagel and Newman. They had written the article in Scientific American. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw that book when it got published. I was 11. You know, I was, I had permission to take out books from the adult section in the New York City Public Library. I had piles of books at home. And I was reading, reading, reading physics, uh, mathematics. It was a nice time to be a kid growing up in Manhattan. I guess, especially if you're interested in that sort of stuff. You said you you had your hands on some of the original works of Euler. Yeah. Do you consider him, I, I consider him maybe, uh, if not the greatest, but certainly the most prolific mathematician? Yeah, they may still be publishing his collected works. When I was a kid, there were many, many volumes, and there were going to be more. Um, He's my favorite mathematician. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's the... It's sort of silly to rank people. People talk of Gauss as the, I don't know what they say, the prince of mathematics or something. As far as I'm concerned, it's Euler. If Gauss is the prince, then Euler is the king, you know? Euler is the king. Yeah. His papers are beautiful to read. He he gives his whole train of thought, and it looks it looks obvious. It looks obvious only while you're reading Euler. Gauss gives very concise uh, papers that are very hard to decipher. But while you're reading Euler, you think, "Oh, I could have done this." But of course, only Euler <laughs> could have done this. Yeah, I I understand when he lost the sight in both of his eyes, he would sit around in Saint Petersburg with with students and dictate his ideas to them because they, he wasn't able to see. Yeah. But his productivity didn't go down. His productivity didn't go down. Yeah. Uh, Just, just an astonishing mind. Yeah. It's, it's, it's astonishing because you ask, where did all this creativity come from? You know, the new mathematics, beautiful new mathematics was just pouring out of his head onto the paper and um, the publishers couldn't keep up. So his paper, he had a pile of papers that he had, and every now and then, somebody would take some of them off the top, I think, and he would keep adding more. So, <laughs> so they weren't published in order that they were done. And um, when I was reading the collected works of Euler, the Russians had a, this pile of manuscripts that hadn't all been uh, included in, um, in his collected works yet. So they, they were still... And they were being cagey. They weren't. Uh, they were going slow. So you suspect that the, the works of Euler are still being translated? You believe? I don't know. It's it, well, let's see. I was. This was what sixty years ago. So uh-huh. maybe they finally. No, they were being published in the original language, which uh, Latin I didn't know, but I knew French, so um, I could read his papers in French, uh, pretty much uh, like I could read English, but. But in um, a lot of it was Latin, and then I had to struggle with a, a dictionary. But, you know, you, one knows the topic. If it was a paper on number theory, I knew some number theory. And uh, so that was, a, it was, it was an absolute treat. I also had the collected works of uh, Niels Heinrich Abel in my hands, a, a child prodigy who did some beautiful work. But Euler, work, Euler works on every possible topic. And so where does all this new mathematics, where does this creativity come from? You know, it seems to be, uh, have a supernatural source. You know, there seems to be as if, as if, yeah. Oh, that's great. In fact, that that's a topic I want to talk to you about later, yeah. whether or not maybe the creativity might be, for example, non-algorithmic, non-computable. 
Yeah, maybe maybe God was talking to him. You know, Cantor thought that. Um, so, because it's really hard to explain where all that all those new ideas came from. It's uh, Ramanujan is another example like that. Oh, he was that Indian that knew incredibly intuitive things about number theory, which were just mind blowing. Yeah. He didn't have a formal education in math, and he, he said that uh, there was a Hindu goddess, I can't recall her name, he said that she would tell him mathematics while he slept. So, uh, <laughs> Really? Okay. That's the most reasonable explanation I can think of for how he did that, or, or, or how Euler did that. Unless we work out a complete artificial intelligence, and it can do what Cantor or Ramanujan did, for now, I think the best... Uh, the best explanation is the one that Ramanujan gave. Which was a supernatural sort of intervention. Right. That's very interesting. Right. Now, you, you mentioned that you read Gödel as a young man, the uh, article about his incompleteness theorem in Scientific American. I also know that you had a, a near brush with Gödel. And I've heard the story from you, but I've never seen it published. I, I wonder if you could share that near, near meeting with Gödel. That was fascinating, I thought. Uh, I think... I- it's somewhere, maybe in a paper based on a lecture. Well, the story was um, I had been in Argentina for a number of years, and IBM sent me to the U.S. What happened was um, I was invited to be a summer visitor at uh, the IBM Watson Research Center, and I was living in the YMCA in White Plains. And um, I'm not sure. It's, this was a long time ago. So anyway, what happened was I had the proofs of one of my first papers on incompleteness. It was from the IEEE Transactions on Information Theory. Yes. This was in the early 1970s. And uh, uh, I sent him the proofs. Well, I called him up and I looked up Gödel's phone number in the telephone book. I called him up. I think he picked up the phone. And um, I said, Professor Gödel, I have a... A different approach to proving incompleteness. So you you cold called him then? Yeah, right. Wow, out of the blue. Instead of basing it on the paradox of the liar, Epimenides paradox, uh, uh, my my approach is based on the Barry paradox. And Gettle answered, "Well, it doesn't matter which paradox you use." He had said that in his <laughs> 1931 paper. I was familiar with his paper. So I said, uh, "Of course," but this suggests to me. Um, I don't remember what I said. Something like um, a whole new approach. Uh, uh, I don't know. What did I say? Or a definition of complexity that I would very much like to talk to you about and uh, get your reaction. So he said, okay, send me a paper of yours on this topic. I'll take a look at it. And um, if I like it, maybe I'll give you an appointment to visit. So I sent him the proofs. I had the proofs of um, that IEEE paper. It was my second IEEE information theory transactions paper, actually. Did it come out in 74? Okay, so I sent him the, um, the proofs. It hadn't been published yet. And I called him up. And he said, uh, I think I remember, he said, very interesting. He said, your notion of complexity uh, is an absolute notion. Now, this was a distinction he made between the, the idea of what you can compute is absolute. It doesn't depend on the axioms, whereas what you can prove does. So he had taken a look at it and immediately perceived a, a crucial aspect of the definition of complexity that I was proposing. And he gave me an appointment. This is when I was visiting the Watson Center. So I did some research to figure out I was without a car. 
I would take the train into New York City. From New York City, I would take the train out to, I don't know, Princeton Junction or something. And I would get there. Nothing could stop me, right? Yes. I was all set for the great day. And it snowed. And this was the week before Easter. So that's a unusual, a spring snowstorm. But nothing was going to stop me from, it wasn't a big snowstorm. Nothing was going to stop me from visiting my hero. So there I am in my office at the IBM Watson Center. Uh, about to leave. I figured out how much time I needed. About to leave. And unfortunately, very unfortunately, the phone rang. It was Gettle's secretary saying, Gettle is very careful with his health. And because it snowed, he's not coming in to his office today. And therefore, mm. your appointment is canceled. <laughs> so that was um, a surreal experience. And there was no way to reschedule because that was... I was going to leave just in a few days uh, heading back to Argentina, to Buenos Aires. But, you know, actually, this surreal story actually fits better Gettle and his legend. Because, for example, when Gettle died, they found lots of uh, answers typed up uh, to letters he received, but were never sent. They were never mailed. So <laughs> there was a surreal quality to Gettle and to communicating with Gettle. He was a quirky guy and a germaphobe, if I recall correctly. Uh, yeah, he was from what, what at the time was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he, he didn't accept being made a member of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. He never went back to Europe, never visited Europe. He turned down, uh, they offered him to be a member of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. So... Um, He's an interesting guy. One of the books I like about Gödel is in French. It's called Le Demon de Gödel, Logique et Folie. So that means Gödel's Demons, Logic and Madness. <laughs> and this okay. was by uh, uh, a gentleman in France who actually went through the Gödel arch archive at, uh, at Princeton. Half the book was also in devoted to Emil Post, a forgotten genius. Oh, yes, yes. Emil Post, yes. Yeah. yeah one of the things that I, I, I'm familiar with that Gödel did that wasn't published until after his death was its ontological proof of the existence of God based right. on Anselm's uh, argument. So right. I guess there were a lot of things of that sort. Yeah, he was definitely a theist. Uh, he, he was living in the Middle Ages, sort of. Uh, there's a wonderful story that um, Rebecca Goldstein published, the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study would um, occasionally have uh, fancy dinners, basically for people who might contribute additional funding to the institute or provide political support. And at these dinners, they would ask their stars to be present, you know, to impress the potential donors and other members of uh, the institute. So Gödel was at such a dinner, you had to go, right? It wasn't uh, optional. He probably wouldn't have wanted to be there. He was at a dinner sitting next to a, a young astrophysicist. And the astrophysicist was very proud of some discovery. He had made uh, an observational discovery. And he spent a lot of time explaining it to Gettel. And finally, he stopped expecting Gettel to uh, express admiration for uh, the story he told. Instead of which, Gettel replied, um, I don't believe in empirical science. I only believe in a priori truths. <laughs> you know, that's an answer from the Middle Ages. Nece a priori truths are necessary truths uh, that don't depend on. Uh, so maybe he didn't believe in evolution either. I'm not sure. Well, he didn't. There's a, there's a famous quote that he said, um, 
evolution is I forget the analogy, but it, it was it was basically that a printing factory explode and result in a in a book or something like that. So he was not a big believer in evolution either. Yeah. So he was an he was a very interesting person, an interesting mind. We are chatting with Gregory Chaitin, the co-founder of the field of algorithmic information theory that explores properties of computer programs. Professor Chaitin, welcome again. Thank you very much, Bob. Yeah, in particular, it looks at the size of computer programs in bits. And more technically, you ask, what is the size in bits of the smallest computer program you need to calculate a given digital object? And that's called the program size complexity or the algorithmic information content. And I've heard you call those elegant programs. Well, the elegant programs are the, yeah, that's the smallest program that has the output that it does. And its size in bits will be the measure of complexity or of algorithmic information content. Yes. Yes. Now this goes back to your co-founding the area of algorithmic information theory. And as a teenager, you published a landmark paper the title of it was On the Length of Programs for Computing Finite Binary Sequences. You published it in the Associate, the Journal of the Association for Computing Machinery, which I guess is the oldest journal associated with theoretical computer science. It was founded in 1947, right after World War II. And uh, this was a landmark paper in the founding of algorithmic information theory, and you covered a number of topics. And one of them, which is just fascinating, is a brand new concept of the idea of randomness. You offered a whole new definition of randomness. Uh, Do you have a definition for randomness in general? Well, look, um, the normal definition of randomness is if the process that produces something is unpredictable, like tossing a coin, if you have a balanced, a fair coin, and um, you keep tossing it, that's going to give you a random sequence of heads and tails, right? That's you look at how it was generated, the sequence. But what I wanted was a definition that doesn't, uh, I wanted a mathematical definition because you see, if you toss a coin, you could get all heads, and that isn't random, but it is possible. Yes. So, so I didn't like that definition. So I wanted a definition of lack of structure. You see, with the normal coin tosses, actually every possible finite sequence of heads and tails, in a sense, is equally random, because they were all generated by tossing a fair coin, independent tosses of a fair coin. But some of them, all heads has a lot of structure, all tails have a lot of structure, Alternating heads and tails have a lot of structure. So I was uh, looking at something that ignored how the sequence is generated and just looked at it and said, is there structure here or isn't there? Now, the, the reason for doing this is because you can think of a, a theory, a physicist theory to explain a phenomenon as, um, as a program, a software that can calculate the predictions. So if, this, if the program is short then you have a very comprehensible theory and a lot of structure. But if the program is the same size in bits as the number of bits of experimental data, then that's not much of an explanation. It's not much of a theory because there always is a program the same size in bits as the bits of data. Why? Because it just put the the data into the program directly and print it out. That can always be done. But the smaller the program is compared in size and bits to the number of bits of data that you're trying to explain, 
And I'm talking about an explanation that gives no noise. It's not a statistical theory. It has to give every bit correctly of the data. If that's a small program, then you have a, a good theory. And if you have two theories and one of them is a smaller program than the other, the smaller program is a better theory if, if two of them calculate the exact sequence of your experimental data. So it's sort of a model of the scientific method. Now, I'm not using equations. Normally, people talk about, uh, there's a lot of talk about complexity in discussions of the philosophy of, of science, but they're talking about the complexity of equations, for example. And that's very hard to define and make a mathematical theory about it because, you know, mathematical notation changes. But if you have to explain to a computer how to calculate the observations, there are universal Turing machines, there are optimum computers that give the smallest programs, and that's a, a good basis for a mathematical theory, a more precise definition of, of complexity. See, so when I was a kid, I was reading a book by Karl Popper called uh, The Logic of Scientific Discovery, I think it was called. He has a whole chapter on simplicity, and uh, he points out some remarks of Hermann Weil on this, another book that I read. Hermann Weil has, was a wonderful, he was a student of Hilbert. He was a wonderful mathematician and mathematical physicist. And he wrote two books on philosophy where he, he says that um, the notion of causality of a theory, really saying that there's something um, is governed by a scientific law is meaningless unless you have a notion of complexity mm -hmm. because there's always a law, you know, you can always find, he points out this goes back to Leibniz in 1686. You can also always find an equation passing through uh, points of data on a graph, a thing called the Grangian interpolation, which will produce an, an algebraic equation that passes through any finite set of points. Yes. So Leibniz makes a, a similar remark that Weil was aware. So you have to have a notion of complexity as well as a notion of what a law is, because uh, Otherwise, it's meaningless to say that there's a theory for something. So this is a very, uh, I think this is a very deep remark. And the question was, I think uh, Weil also says, it's, it's tough to define this precisely because mathematical notation changes. What are you going to use? Are you going to use Bessel functions in your equation, for example? They change as a function of time. So it seems uh, a bit arbitrary. Now, taking a universal computer and looking at the size and bits of a program gives a, a more definite notion of a complexity that you measure in bits. Also, there's a problem because if you look at what Weil discussed and what Leibniz discussed, they're talking about points of data that a scientist has on graph paper. And these points are infinite precision information. They're real numbers, right? In theory, mm -hmm. a point is infinite precision. So it's an infinite amount of information. So a key step in, in algorithmic information theory is that you replace the original problem, which was points of data on graph paper and an equation passing through those points, which doesn't work out too well, although it's closer to the real case in real physics. You replace it by discrete and finite amounts of information. So you think of the physical scientific data you're trying to explain as a sequence, a finite sequence of zeros and ones. And then the program, which is your theory, is also a finite sequence of zeros and ones in binary. And inside computers, it's always binary. So then it's very easy to compare how many bits in your theory versus how many bits in your data, you see. So the simplest theory is the best. 
And if there is no theory simpler than the data you're trying to explain, then uh, the data is uh, random. It's, uh, it has no structure. Because any sequence of, of bits, you can calculate it from a program the same size in bits as the data, you see. So that doesn't enable you to distinguish between a sequence of bits with structure from a sequence of bits that has no structure. It's when you say that the program has to be simpler than the data you're trying to explain. Your theory has to be, had to be simpler than the, than the data. Then it's a theory. So this idea goes back to the discourse on metaphysics, which is a relatively short text of Leibniz. The original is in French. It's called Discours de Metaphysique. It was found nearly a century after Leibniz died among his papers. The, the person who found it gave it this name. And Weil, uh, following the Germanic tradition, had studied a lot of philosophy. Leibniz is a hero in the German-speaking world. He's less known outside the German-speaking world. And so his two books on philosophy mention Leibniz and mention this idea of Leibniz. And um, then Popper refers to it in The Logic of Scientific Discovery, which was originally in German also, by the way. Uh, he was a refugee from the Second World War. And algorithmic information theory takes up this question and changes the context from a theory being an equation passing through a set of points, which have an infinite precision, to making everything discrete and have a finite number of bits. And then, mathematically, you're in business. So this was the fundamental idea that inspired, at least it inspired me, to, to try to work out a detailed theory. And I had these papers in high school, but I did many versions of the theory. And the, the one that I regard as definitive, it's called a theory of program size, um, formally identical to information theory, also published in the journal of the ACM. I think it was 1975 in the ACM journal, theory of program size, formally identical to information theory. So the original versions uh, had some problems, and um, I think the definitive version is from uh, 1975. Now, my interest in, in this was philosophical. I wanted to understand what a theory is, how to measure its complexity. Uh, but mostly I was interested in incompleteness, because this, it turns out that this notion of complexity asks for the size of the smallest program to calculate something. This is how you measure the algorithmic information content of that digital object. It's a nice definition, you have a nice mathematical theory, but you can never calculate it. Well, except in a finite number of cases for very small programs. Everywhere you go, you get incompleteness in this theory. Things that you can define, but you can't calculate. So incompleteness sort of hits you in the face in this theory. And my main interest was in, in incompleteness, in trying to extend the work of Gödel and Turing that I had studied as a teenager on incompleteness. But there are other people who have more pr practical interests uh, and, and, and making this criterion that a good theory is a small one. Uh, you can apply that to predicting future uh, observations by looking at the size. This, of this the is program. kind of the work of Solomonoff, right? Yeah, he was interested in prediction. I was more interested in having, looking at a given string of bits and asking, does it have structure or not? And the incompleteness results regarding this question. For example, most strings of bits have no structure, according to this definition. It, they cannot be compressed into a smaller program. But it turns out you can almost never prove it. You can show that it's very high probability, but it's only provable for, can only be provable for extremely small sequences. 
So that was what fascinated me. But, but, but Solomonov was interested in artificial intelligence. And Marvin Mitsky praised uh, Solomonov's theory. And about a year before he died, he, in the World Science Fair at, uh, in New York City, Marvin and I were on a panel uh, and we were filmed with Rebecca Goldstein and Mario Livio. And a Nobel Prize winner in biology was the moderator. And it's an hour and a half in film. And at the very end, Marvin surprised me by saying that in his view, the decisive step forward from Ghetto is using this approach to making predictions. Now he says it can't be done. It would require an infinite amount of computing to, to get the, precisely the, the best prediction according to this criterion. But he says he suspects there are good approximations and people ought to work on that. And in fact, indeed, people have worked on that. Hector Zanil has done a lot with um, using approximate versions of these ideas, which are computable. Yes, I, um, yeah, I'm an engineer. I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer that loves mathematics. And I, I teach a graduate course on information theory, including both Shannon and uh, algorithmic information theory. And I explain uh, the randomness in this fashion. And let me pass it by you just to make sure that I'm, I'm explaining it right. It's the uh, maximal degree to which a, a sequence of bits can be compressed. And we talk about compressing files using Limple ZIF and ZIP files and PNG images where, where they compress the image in order to transmit it over a channel. And they do that much like dehydrated food. You take the water out, you ship it because the shipping is cheaper, and then you hydrate it on the other side. But this Limple ZIF doesn't... Um, I've tried it on a number of different images, like, uh, for example, an image and the scaled image, and it doesn't take. So clearly, the, the Limple ZIF and the ZIP files that we generate are not the smallest. And so I make the case that there must be a smallest file that generates the random uh, output. And that is the concept of what you would call elegant programs. Is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, of course. That's a very good way to explain it. I, I was interested in Shannon's uh, theory of information and uh, noiseless coding, uh, the coding with redundancy when there's noise. And uh, one of my papers, one of my first papers was in 1970 in the IEEE Information Theory Transactions. I didn't start there with the philosophy of science. That interested me, but I didn't think... The, the readers of that article would be very interested. So I started with the Shannon diagram and said, well, let's send the smallest program to calculate something. That's going to be, that's noiseless coding. That's going to be the most compressed version. And then at the other end, what you do is you, that's a kind of a universal scheme for compressing. That'll give you the best compression possible. If you use a computer at the other end to get back the original message, you run the program and it gives you the original message. The only problem with this is you can't get the best program, the most concise, compressed form of the message according to this definition. It exists in the platonic world of mathematics, but actually finding it is impossible, in fact, in general. So, uh, so that's the philosophically interesting part, but you can view it from an engineering point of view. And if you're interested in AI and making predictions, um, and Marvin Minsky was, and Ray Solomonoff was, then this is, um, it's a very interesting new approach. And, uh, and as Minsky said, uh, well, he he's, likes to be provocative. He said, uh, 
everybody should should work on this to find practical approximations to to this impossible task. And the, I, the person I know who's done it best has been uh, Hector Zanil and his collaborators. He's in, in Europe. So my interests were more proving theorems and in particular proving incompleteness theorems and the light it sheds on the scientific method. It's metaphysics. You know, what is a theory? What is the simplicity of a theory? What's a good theory? If you have two theories, which will you look at? Uh, that was this, my starting point. But I, I was reading Shannon. I was reading Turing. I was reading von Neumann on game theory. Ah. Actually, uh, I had forgotten the definition of randomness that I had put in the essay question to get into the Columbia Honors, Columbia Program for Bright High School Students. And I remembered it when I read a footnote in von Neumann, his theory for certain games says you're, the best thing to do is to toss a coin. And that's because, well, it's, it's a little long to explain. And the, he has a footnote saying, uh, actually, does that mean there's only a theory of games in a world, in a world where there exists randomness? And uh, I said, no, you can have a theory that, you see, everyone will know the theory. So if the theory says toss a coin, the fact that everyone knows the theory doesn't mean that you're dead because your opponent will know what to do. But another alternative is instead of tossing a coin is if it's an uncomputable sequence of, uh, of moves that you should make. And um, that way the theory could tell you to pick a unstructured sequence and then you, it's not a contradiction because you and your opponent will know the theory, but uh, he won't be able to use that knowledge against you. But if, unfortunately, you won't be able to, unless an oracle or God uh, gives you an unstructured maximum program size complexity sequence, you won't be able to, to do what the theory says you should do. But in theory, it's, it shows that in a world without randomness, you could also... Uh, have a theory that would be uh, impractical, but it would tell you what would be the best thing to do. So it was that footnote where von Neumann says, uh, there's the strange aspect of this theory that it seems to depend on quantum mechanics and the fact that there are, that the universe contains randomness. And uh, I think he says, uh, this could be discussed in a greater length, but he leaves it there. And I said, oh, the random sequences, the unstructured sequence I had thought of in that answer to that essay question at Columbia University, that would also work. Now, how, how you get it, I don't know, <laughs> but, but it would work. So I was playing with it. So I remembered the definition, and then I uh, started to work out the mathematics. Uh, so th that, that was the summer between my first year and my second year at City College. And then the dean excused me from attending classes because uh, I was working on this immense paper. <laughs> That's something. The dean was a mathematician, by the way. I was a professor of mathematics at that time. So, and, that, and I was at City College where Emil Post had been. Oh, okay. They had his photograph on the wall of the office of the chairman of the math department. You know, your, your, your test at Columbia reminds me of a test that I give. If you give a test where all the problems are simple, you get kind of a histogram with a little peak. If you make them all hard, you get a, another peak on the other end. So you know, an ideal test should have a gradient. And I tell the students that there's going to be some simple ones, some medium ones, and some hard ones. And sometimes I ask questions which I don't know the answer for. So I tell them, if you get if you get the answer to some of the harder questions, we have a publication. That's, that's so right. I think that that's, that's kind of what you did at the Columbia entrance test, right? Yeah. Well, that reminds me of a joke of uh, 
my late friend Jacob Schwartz, mathematician at Kuhn Institute. He floated the idea of putting Thermat's last theorem as a, including it in the problems in a, an important exam in mathematics, in the hope that some undergraduate would come up with a wonderful short, Fermat claimed he had a short proof, a wonderful short proof, not knowing that this was an immensely hard problem that many famous mathematicians had worked on unsuccessfully for a long time. But that's not how it was solved. It was solved with a very fine, sophisticated mathematician working on it in secret for years. And it's a very long proof. Wiles' proof. Amazing. I guess uh, Fermat was wrong when he said he could fit the proof in the margin. You know, that's an interesting historical question. When Fermat said he had a proof, he always had a proof, I think. The only case that was left hanging was, was that. So he was a very superb mathematician, Fermat. So I personally think he had a proof, but we haven't figured it out. It, it was based on different ideas than Wiles' proof because those concepts didn't exist at that time. So, but I'm, uh, I could be wrong. By the way, there's a lovely musical comedy about all of this called Fermat's Last Tango, and it's available <laughs> on the web. It's a conflict between the ghost of Fermat that doesn't want Wiles to find the proof and, and Wiles, and Wiles' wife, who would like Wiles to come back to Earth because he's working all the time on this in secret, and she doesn't get to see him very much, nor do his children. Uh, it's a great fun. It's a musical comedy. It's written by someone who knows mathematics. So the jokes are all good math jokes. Uh, and um, what, was it? I got to ask: Was it successful? It seems that the audience would be somewhat limited. People were, were falling off their seats. Um, it, it was wonderful. It, they're not terribly sophisticated math jokes, but it's they're all correct, and the songs are correct, and the history that they give. They, and this is just, um, you know, there's a, a, a song where uh, Fermat is taunting Wiles, your proof has got a hole. <laughs> it's, it's very clever. And, all, and they also have heaven where they're the ghosts of uh, Euclid, Gauss, uh, Pythagoras, looking over all of this. It's, 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 and they, the different styles of music. It's, it's great fun. They, they're dancing also. It's wonderful. I tell you, it, it takes a lot of talent to take a, something, a mathematical proof and make it into an entertaining play. That is, that is wonderful. It's a musical comedy, which sounds even harder, right? Yes, exactly. So we're going to find uh, this. You say it's a, YouTube? The Clay Foundation, the one that has the Clay Prizes for million dollars for those very hard problems, the Clay Institute, something oh, like that. They, yes. they paid the money to, to make a DVD, and then somebody put it on YouTube. So you can now get it like that. I, I recommend it highly. Oh, and then there's a song taunting um, Wiles, where Fermat is taunting Wiles again to try to keep him from finding his proof, saying mathematics is a young man's game. And how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, did Fermat do this as a, a when he was older? No, no. This is uh, this is a fantasy. This is Fermat's ghost. Oh, Fermat. Uh, I'm not sure. It's a marginal comment in a copy of Diophantus, and the the book. I think the book was even lost. It's E.T. Bell thinks somebody stole it. So, anyway, I go and see this musical comedy. It's uh, it's great fun, and all, 
all the math is right. We will, we will find the uh, link to that and post it on the podcast notes. So let me just start out with the question. Is, is math discovered or is it invented? What's your take? Well, I think that's a fascinating question. And, you know, deep philosophical questions have uh, many answers, sometimes contradictory answers even that different people believe in. You know, some, some mathematics, uh, I think, is definitely invented, not discovered. Uh, that tends to be sort of trivial mathematics uh, papers. That, that fill in much-needed gaps uh, because somebody has to publish, you know. So you take some problem, you change the wording of the mathematical problem a little bit, and then you write a paper. You solve it, and then you write a paper. But uh, other mathematics does seem to be discovered. That's when you find some really deep fundamental mathematical idea, and there it, it really looks inevitable. If you hadn't discovered it, somebody else would have discovered it because it really seems to be a fundamental idea. Now, so one idea is that math, mathematics is in the mind of God or in the platonic world of ideas. It's all there, and all we do is discover it. But uh, I think there's a distinction. You know, uh, Poincaré, a famous mathematician, Henri Poincaré, he said, uh, it sounds better in French than in English. He said, there are, <laughs> there are problems that we pose and problems that pose themselves. Ah. So those are the two, two different kinds, invented and discovered. So when you find some really fundamental new mathematical idea, you have this feeling that you've seen into the mind of God, and it's really fantastic. That would be Cantor, Georg Cantor. Or... Um, if you hadn't discovered it, someone else would have, because it's so basic, it's so beautiful, that uh, it's got to be there in the mind of God or in, in the platonic world of ideas. But everything is in the platonic world of ideas, the platonic world of mathematics. So, but if, if you're a mathematician at a university and you're struggling to publish, I don't know how many papers per year, you can't work on such fundamental questions all the time, because then you won't publish enough papers, right? Yes. So there is this pressure to invent stuff, minor variations on previous work. And that is a, is a shame, I think. And I think it should be regarded as being invented. Although one attitude is to say that it's all in the platonic world of, of mathematics. Yeah. In, in engineering, we call those three dB papers, three decibel papers, because three decibels is the minimal amount that you can increase the volume of something and detect it. So there are landmark papers, and then there's lots of three dB incremental <laughs> papers that you talked about. Yeah. So You guys have the same pressure to publish as everyone else, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yes, the, it's... Uh, it's kind of unfortunate because you don't hear the word scholarship very much anymore in academia. Yeah, and people don't write books. They're, they're, in the past, uh, some wonderful mathematicians like G.H. Hardy would write wonderful books, A Mathematician's Apology or his book on number theory. And they're just beautiful papers. Uh, Claude Shannon's paper is just, it's just a wonderful paper uh, in the founding of Shannon information theory. And Lot Fisada in 1965 w wrote a wonderful paper on the founding of, of fuzzy or soft logic. And I don't see those sorts of papers anymore. Everybody's interested in number more than quality. Yeah, well, nobody can work on a, 
on a difficult project, which may be years until you come up with something, or maybe you'll never come up with something. So you have to do that if you want to try that kind of stuff. You have to do it in parallel with uh, more normal stuff. And I think that uh, Andrew Wiles, when he was w working in secret for years in his attic on uh, Fermat's Last Theorem, uh, he couldn't have stopped publishing altogether. So he, he probably had more routine mathematical questions he published on. And he probably cursed them because it was taking time away from his great project. But the great project could, could fail, could have failed. And he, he needed something, he would need something to fall back on. There, yeah. There's an old uh, academic joke that the dean can't read, but the dean can count. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they don't look at the contents of the paper, right. but they just count the paper numbers. And, and right. uh, I, think, I think that that's unfortunate and it's kind of a pressure to reduce the quality of papers. Well, it's, there also used to be professors who were wonderful teachers. The students adored them. They learned a lot from them. But they weren't uh, research mathematicians, for example. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that anymore. You don't get credit for being a wonderful teacher, as far as I know, or for writing wonderful books. You have to have refereed papers, if I'm not mistaken. So that's too bad. But what can you do? We have to play it according to the current rules, right? I was able to not play it according to the current rules because I was being paid to do uh, industrial development work for IBM at IBM Research. So I worked on hardware. I worked on hardware design. I worked on the software for new hardware. That was a lot of fun. And I was doing my mathematical research as a hobby, basically. So that was how I created an ecological niche for myself, because a rather unconventional story as a mathematician, I don't have a degree. I only have honorary degrees. So, And you you hear about people who were discouraged from doing publication. I don't know if it was Popper, it was somebody like him that, that wrote that his institution didn't want him to publish because it took away time from teaching. And that certainly changed. Oh, he was a professor at first in, uh, in New Zealand, I think. And he had a terrible, he had to escape from Europe. I think he might have been Jewish and he was Maybe he, yeah. And anyway, so he managed to get into New Zealand and they, he had a terribly heavy teaching load. Mm -hmm. And then fortunately, he managed to, to go to uh, the London School of Economics, I think it was. And uh, there he didn't have uh, that outrageously heavy teaching load. And we even see this from, uh, I guess he, he was an employee of the Guinness Brewing Company, Gossett who came up with this incredible math, which is still taught today to undergraduates. And he couldn't associate his name with the article, so he published under the name Student T. Oh. And we still refer to it as the, as the Student T uh, mm. uh, or the T statistic. And he was also under pressure not to take time away from his, uh, from his work. Today, it's exactly the opposite, by the way. You can, if, if you're a mediocre teacher and you publish a lot, you get all sorts of accolades as long as your teaching is acceptable. So um, that's, that's unfortunate, but that's the way things have evolved. Yeah. Well, what can you do? Um, you got to play the game, I guess. Well, right? you don't have to look at Elon Musk. He's my great hero. He's a wonderful engineer and he's a wonderful entrepreneur and he doesn't follow the rules. He doesn't, and innovators don't follow the rules. I think that's one of the elements and one of the characteristics of creativity. And that's tough. I mean, Elon is clearly a genius, an amazing engineer, uh, incredibly talented and innovative. But he also has to figure out a way to do this in the real world. 
and he has managed to do it. So that's that's a remarkable achievement also. And I admire him greatly. But then again, we, we, we were talking offline about the relationship between genius and, and creativity. And we talked about, for example, the quirkiness of Gödel and, and, and George Cantor spending a lot of his life in a sanatorium because of mental anguish. Elon Musk has his quirks too. He has opined that we are all computer simulations. He has? Well, that's a popular view now. You know, the, the computer has replaced God in a lot of people's minds. And I think we're all the poorer for it. But it's the fashion now. So we're machines. We're machines. AIs are going to be better than us. Human beings will be obsolete. Uh, this is the fashionable view. And of course, I don't appreciate it very much. Well, that that's wonderful. Uh, you know, Mind Matters and our podcast is part of the Bradley Center the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. And that's one of the things that we push back on, is the idea that there are things that machines uh, can't do that humans will always be able to do. And um, we, we actually use some algorithmic information theory to, to back the theory. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you're not a, yeah. uh, a proponent that machines are going to replace people. Well, we, we still have some attributes that I think that will never be duplicated. They might replace people if they're cheaper and, and better at uninteresting tasks. But I think human beings will always be better at, at creativity, at doing art. You know, as Turing said, a computer is likely to write poetry that only another computer would enjoy reading. <laughs> that, you know, that assumes that another computer can enjoy. I don't think computers have the capability of enjoying. Yeah, I don't know. So Elon Musk is worried that AI will get out of control. And uh, he's also has his personal project to not let computers replace humans by coupling computers and humans into a symbiosis where both can contribute what they're best at. And I can't remember the name of the company that's working on a higher bandwidth connection. It's called Neuralink, I believe. Yeah, that's right. That's the one I'm thinking of. Where, where he implants a chip in the brain, and I think I'm going to wait a while before, before I do that. I don't think I want a chip in my brain. Yeah, well, they're doing it to justify doing that. They're doing it for people who are quadriplegics, for example, who need, who need help. Uh, no one will argue that it's a, a good thing. But um, trying to make a symbiosis between humans and computers, uh, Elon thinks you need to do that so that human beings aren't left behind. So if you give a high bandwidth link between computers and people, he thinks that'll help people to not feel obsolete, but to sort of participate. You know, human beings use machinery, and we don't think that just because uh, I can't run as fast as a sports car or lift as much uh, weight as a steam shovel, we don't think that that means that human beings are valueless. We invented those devices. And similarly... Um, some things computers certainly are, are better at than humans, like remembering precisely large quantities of information unless you have a photographic memory. And Elon seems to have a photographic memory for technology. Von Neumann was said to have a more general photographic memory. So um, a symbiotic relationship between the two of us, each one might contribute what they're, what they're better at and people will not feel that they have uh, become obsolete. It'll just be like using a steam shovel or using an airplane instead of trying to fly by flapping your arms. Well, the, the comedian Emo Phillips says that computers might be able to beat him at chess, but he can always win a game of spirited kickboxing. So <laughs> so I think that, yeah, there are things which uh, which 
computers uh, can do, they can do well, but there are limitations on them. On the other hand, we invented the computers, so whatever, we can take the credit for whatever they do well, you know. Well, yes, and, and you'll notice this idea that e, of Elon Musk's fear, and I and I don't want to detract from Elon Musk because he's clearly a genius, but this assumption that computer software is going to write more creative computer software, that's going to write more creative computer software, and you're going to have an AI which reaches just this hyper-intelligence, has the assumption that computers can write uh, programs that are creatively more... Uh, more able to do things than the original computer programs. Yeah, I would think a team of brilliant engineers might write an amazing piece of AI software, uh, but the AI software doesn't rewrite itself. Exactly. This this actually dovetails in, uh, this is something I think I read that you wrote, and you, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but you were talking about computer programs and software that was able to prove meaningful theorems, that is, insightful theorems of the type that a, that a brilliant mathematician would write. And I believe you said that there's no evidence of that happening. Well, you know, I made that remark some years back. What, the, what they have now are proof checkers. You write the, the proof in a, in a special language, precise mathematical notation, and um, there's software that can check if the proof is correct or ask you to provide more steps if it doesn't understand how one thing followed from another. That technology is improving. So there are mathematicians who claim that at least um, that all of math should be written up this way and submitted to uh, checking like this. But these computers are not doing wonderful new mathematics. Exactly. There's a difference between checking the proof and originating the proof. Yeah, there's an enormous difference. Now, there is a, what I regard as a piece of AI, so it might be interesting to talk about it. My friend Stephen Wolfram, the system he's created, I don't know what it's called, the Wolfram language, Wolfram Alpha. Yes. That, that I, you know, what Euler would have accomplished with that is unbelievable. Euler and Gauss used to calculate, were wonderful at doing calculations, and they would do lots of calculations and then make conjectures based on the patterns they saw. Well... Uh, if Euler or Gauss had had uh, Wolfram Alpha or Mathematica, they would have done a lot more. Especially when you go to Wolfram Alpha, it begins to start feeling like an AI. Now, it's an AI which has a big team of people behind it who take information and curate it about the world, about physics, about chemistry, about economics, uh, about geography. They curate it and they put it into this system. But it's pretty amazing. You know, it would have looked like magic, I think, to people. Well, computers, almost any computer would have looked like magic uh, just a few years ago. But I think this is an, a genuine AI, but it's, but it's not a human AI. It does, it's not a human general intelligence, and it's not creative. But, but it, it's different. But it's, I think it's an enormous achievement, uh, what Wolfram has done. Oh, Wolfram's Mathematica and his... Um... His other works are just just astonishing in what they can do, mm-hmm. but as, as you mentioned, they're all algorithmic. They're the, the the logical steps, much like the theorem checker, are something which humans have placed in there, which allow you to put in things like indefinite integrals and uh, advanced calculus equations, and it right. gives you the solution. It's it's really really remarkable. Yeah, Wolfram is a genius. 
I rate him with Elon Musk. He's a genius at different kinds of technology than Elon is. And um, so Wolfram Alpha is an accomplishment of, of this man of genius who is just like Elon. Elon is an enormous team of very talented engineers, but he's on top of the whole thing, making it work. And uh, Wolfram has wonderful mathematicians, wonderful software people working for him. And um, so this artificial intelligence of an inhuman kind that they've created, but it's very powerful. It's done by human beings. So I think it, we should be proud of that achievement. We should be proud. But it's not creative. Yeah. It's, yes. I think the creativity is the big thing. It didn't program itself. Uh, Wolfram worked very hard with all his people to, to make it uh, capable of doing more and more and more. It wasn't his software that made this thing involved to what they can do now. It was all of them working very hard on it and Wolfram making sure they had a system that could be extended because whatever often happens to software is that, I know because I worked in software for IBM, is there comes a point where basically the software dies because what happens is it's so complicated that no one can understand it anymore, which means if you get bugs, it's, it's tough to debug, debug it and it's also tough to make any any enhancements. So the fact that the, the the mathematical language has gotten us all the way to Wolfram Alpha is something that uh, Stephen worked very hard on to have a system that could grow and be extendable that wouldn't end up trapping him in a corner like most large corporate software does eventually. And he's so far he's achieve this remarkably. Oh, it's astonishing. Yeah, but this is a human being of genius with a very talented team of engineers, mathematicians. This is not software that, that reprogrammed itself. Well, I think that AI in general is going to be a tool which we can use to better ourselves. Absolutely. Like, like a steam shovel, right? Like a steam shovel, exactly. Doesn't mean that human beings are obsolete. Well, you know, I read the uh, chapter by Stephen Wolfram in your tribute book, which we are also going to list in the uh, podcast notes. And he went um, somewhere, I'm not sure, but he went to a library and he took a bunch of pictures of the notes of Leibniz. And I tell you, boy, we've come a long way. These, these old mathematicians, they couldn't compute e to the third power. They just couldn't enter it. They had, to, they had to go to their margins and work out all the details. And it's astonishing all of the work that they have to do that we don't have to do today. Exactly. And Leibniz made mistakes in some of his arithmetical calculations there in the manuscripts. He wasn't good at that. But, you know, we don't... I don't know. You could say we don't have anybody at the intellectual level of Leibniz. No, that depends how you rank it. Because he was good at so many. He came up with fundamental idea, new ideas in so many fields. Uh, maybe it's because he never married and never had children. But, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, you know, he, exactly. But, but he was off the scale, which shows what human beings can achieve. Euler and Ramanujan and Cantor show what human beings can achieve. Well, th this is very interesting. I was I was sitting down, kind of tallying. I think the intellectual uh, giants that have introduced new uh, mathematical ideas, brand new. And I was thinking of people like Claude Shannon, Lot Fizada, yourself, and we. I don't know if we see these these introduction of new great ideas today. Uh, at least I don't see them. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think the bureaucracy is uh, killing the golden goose. Uh, you know, there's too much control uh, 
you have to get research funds, you have to publish lots of trivial papers, and um, you spend too much time uh, filling out uh, grant proposals. Yes. So they're managing to make it impossible for anybody to do any real research. You have to you have to say in advance what you're going to accomplish. You have to have milestones, reports. So what happens, uh, and the European community has made it worse. I was talking to a scientist in Europe, and she told me, I have to spend all the time dealing, uh, interfacing with the bureaucracy in Brussels. I put together a research team, but they're the only ones really doing the research because my time is all taken with this administrivia. So if you give the bureaucrats a chance, they'll grow and grow and grow and eventually sink the ship. But this seems to be the way this, this, uh, this society is working. The Chinese seem to be innovating in engineering uh, in a remarkable way. They have a different system. I don't know what it's like there. Uh, I've seen videos of them putting up a building in amazing uh, speed, for, with amazing speed, for example. You know, there's an old saying that only rich countries can afford poets. Huh. And we used to have we we used to have these great research centers such as Bell Labs, which which dissolved after divestiture. I guess. Yeah, they got so many Nobel prizes. They got so many Nobel prizes. Yeah, it, you know, it was incredible. But but they but but they dissolved. It was a rich country, so they could have these poets where they got together some of the some of the greatest engineers and scientists of all times, and and maybe they would only make one big breakthrough in their lifetimes. But they employed them for their lifetimes for their scholarship. We also see this today at Google. Google, where Google is making available to people all of this wonderful artificial intelligence software. And so that's where I see the innovation coming from, and not so much with from academia. Right. Well, the universities were always very conservative. Um, you know, Elon Musk makes, I think, uh, this remark in an interview he, he gave, uh, maybe it was just a few days before, that remarkable flight of the uh, Starship SN8. I think he makes the remark that if if you don't have research, a lot of research projects that fail, you're not doing enough uh, research. And the problem is, if if failure if failure is unacceptable, then you're in trouble. So, for example, the legacy uh, aerospace companies that make uh, rockets, they take years to design a rocket, and it's it's got to work on its first flight, right? Whereas Elon does rockets the way uh, rocket engineering, the way software, you develop software using it. You know, uh, the software I worked on, we were constantly using our own software. We were doing a compiler and we kept compiling the compiler through itself. So we were constantly eating our own, uh, our own cooking. And we had, we had many prototypes. And if, if there was something wrong, we would fix it and try again. And Elon is doing that. He's doing uh, his uh, his rockets very fast and 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 breaking them and learning from each. So if you don't have a lot of research projects, but you, failure is now unacceptable. So that means that the research projects have to be very conservative. Uh, you can't try something really crazy, right? Yeah. If you if you try to do a project and you fail, you can't publish it. So that's bad for the bean counters. Yeah. Well, the bean counters should get out of our way. So. Let me ask you this. What, what is the solution? Do we have any solutions? One of which, um, this is very controversial to me. I think that some of the government funding is, is not good. And I know it like in Japan and Germany, they require 
they require, well, this is, this is one solution. They require interface of the professors with industry so that they can work on more interesting problems. But that doesn't, that doesn't clear people up to pursue pure creativity. So what's the answer? How can we fix this? Uh, it's tough. I have a pessimistic vision, which I hope is completely wrong, which is that the bureaucracies are like a cancer, the ones that control research and funding for research and counting how much you've been publishing. I think that I've noticed at universities, for example, the administrative personnel are gradually taking all the best buildings, you know, and expanding. So I, I think that a society, the bureaucracy and the rules and regulations increases to the point that it sinks the society. And at that point, basically, I think, uh, I expect like with companies, the country will collapse because it'll fail in a competition with a younger, more vigorous, more daring country. And it's, so, so nations and corporations seem to have a life cycle like human beings do, you know, vigorous youth where they think they can do anything and then they get very conservative. They don't want to, they don't want to come up with a new product which competes with their existing product line because you can't predict how much it's going to earn in advance. At IBM, it used to happen. The salespeople would, this is a completely new technology, new kind of computer they're going to make a very low estimate of how many are going to sell. So we have to charge a lot for each one because we had a lot of development cost and you have to divide it by the, we weren't allowed to dump products. So the result is that it's, it's a lost cause. The, you're, if you want to try some daring new product, it's going to be so expensive that no one is going to buy it. Yeah, it's frustrating. It's, it's, it's more than frustrating. I think it's, it's, it's the end. When a society reaches that point, their innovation is going to go down. You know, I remember when I was a kid, Scientific American, every month was very thick. Why was it thick? Because it had lots of ads from General Dynamics, from other aerospace companies that were trying to hire wonderful engineers. Things were more dynamic. I mean, what did an airplane engineer say? said once, a speech I heard? He said in the old days, a bunch of engineers could go to a motel for the weekend so they wouldn't be distracted by their family with a bunch of six packs of beer and design a, a new airplane. Uh -huh. That doesn't happen anymore. So Elon refers to, to uh, some of these topics in his... Uh, it was an interview by the Wall Street Journal, somebody at the Wall Street Journal. I think it was the 8th, the 8th of December. I found it on YouTube. So these are all, uh, since I was working in industry, I could see all these forces at work at IBM, which in the early days was full of adventurers. There were no computer, there was no computer engineering. The guy I worked with, I think his field was English literature originally, but he wanted to make a, a new industry. You know, he was fascinated by computers and he was one of the great contributors at IBM. So IBM was very vigorous and innovative at first, but then it got more and more bureaucratic and afraid of competing with their existing products. So you get to the point where a new kind of computer can only come from a new company because the existing company will never want to take a chance on something new. So anyway, uh, all this worries me. I hope I'm completely wrong and this doesn't happen. Elon Musk certainly is an example that it's still possible to be tremendously innovative in the field of technology. But he also talks about bureaucracy and how it it's a question of it worries him a lot. And the fact that failure is not allowed, whereas you have to learn from your failures. If you don't fail, it means you're not innovating enough. So uh, 
that worries me a lot. I hope I'm wrong, but I have this vision of the life cycle of corporations and nations. I, I saw what IBM was going through, and uh, a lot of people are worried that uh, China is becoming more capitalist than we are in a funny way. I don't know, but I think it's something that I worry about. And here in South America, I see U.S. influence disappearing, and more and more uh, business with uh, China is now the leading trade partner for a lot of countries in South America rather than the United States. I used to have an account here, a bank account in Citibank, which is the bank I use in the U.S., and uh, they, they decided to leave. Yeah, they sold all their, all their customers and all their branches to another bank, a Brazilian bank. Boy, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's worrisome. But on the other hand, Elon Musk and Stephen Wolfram makes me think that the United States can still do basic innovation in spite of everything. And maybe the bureaucracy is, I remember when I lived in France, uh, people told me that uh, to have a startup, it's much easier in the United States. In France, the rules and regulations are very tough for a number of reasons that I won't go into and I actually don't remember very well. So uh, that's probably why Elon Musk wanted to come to the U.S. He went from South Africa. And now now he's moved from California to my backyard in Texas. Yeah, probably because California, you know, all of the aerospace companies have left manufacturing. Aerospace manufacturing is all gone from, from California. Too much bureaucracy. I think Texas is a freer place. Yep, so far. I hope we can keep it that way. Yeah, let's, let's hope so. So Elon built his spaceport in southern Texas. He's moved his foundation there. So fortunately, there's still Texas. You know, Texas could be a separate country. It can. And, you know, there's rumors that when we joined the union, we were a separate um, country. You spent a year as a separate nation then, didn't you? Yes, the Republic of Texas. Right. In fact, I, wor- I work at a place, Baylor University, that was founded when Texas was a republic. Yeah, well, I worry about creativity. I have a chapter on that in my book, Proving Darwin. And, you know, I, I make a remark that from the point of view of creativity, I think that the best thing to do would be to split up the European community in separate countries and split up the U.S. in separate states, because that would give more freedom of action to creative people instead of having a central bureaucracy. And it would set the free enterprise system into effect. Yeah. There's this, I once asked a Greek, how come uh, ancient Greece was so innovative? And he told me, well, the, the ancient Greeks asked that question themselves. And one answer, I don't know where the answer is, but he didn't tell me that. But he said, because uh, Greece was divided into separate city-states. And actually, it wasn't Athens. The, the talented people would come from other city-states, and they would go to Athens. Whereas uh, Egypt was very uncreative. And why was that? That was because it was flat, and they weren't split up in separate islands or on land divided by volcanoes, is Greece, or mountains. So uh, a central government was able to control all of Egypt. And as a result, Egypt wasn't very innovative, ancient Egypt. And the crazy Greeks were always fighting each other and always with these separate uh, little nations, right, the city-states. You wrote a book uh, for Springer in 1999. It was called The Unknowable. And also, there was a tribute book to you, Unraveling Complexity, The Life and Work of Gregory Chaitin. 
And you were solicited to be an author of one of the chapters. I think it was the second chapter, and it was entitled Unknowability in Mathematics, Biology, and Physics. This is a big deal. What What is unknowability from your perspective? Well, okay. So I have a number I was proud of discovering called the halting probability omega. And that is something where you can prove that the, um, you can define it mathematically very simply. Well, maybe not that simply, but uh, the, the fact that you can't prove in general, that you can't prove that programs are elegant is a simpler incompleteness result. The fact that the bits, the base two bits of the numerical value of the halting probability omega is um, maximally unstructured and maximally unknowable. It's irreducible mathematical information. That's Actually, I guess you have to go through a course on algorithmic information theory to do that. The ideas are, are simple, but now but the question is, does, does that number exist? You know, it exists in the mind of God. It exists to an infinite mind. It is knowable. You could calculate each bit, but we're not infinite minds, right? And um, there's also the question of you can argue that it doesn't even exist, that it's a fantasy object, that it's um, mathematically, it doesn't use very sophisticated math. There's, there's much wilder mathematics. But the numerical value of this number is maximally unstructured and maximally unknowable. So if you think about the kind of things you do normally in mathematics, this is a forever unknowable thing, the value of each individual bit in the numerical value of this number. But you can counterattack saying this is an, a fantasy. It's it's. The real number to an engineer is a fantasy. The real number has infinite precision, right? Mm-hmm. You don't work with infinite precision. We, you know, we're happy to get a few decimal digits. Uh, different problems need more precision. But infinite precision is nowhere to be found except in the imagination of mathematicians who talk about a real number, which is determining the position of a point with infinite precision. But the mathematics is simpler. It, it makes for beautiful mathematics, and it a lot of physics is, is based on uh, partial differential equations and mathematics that depends on the fantasy of infinite precision real numbers. So in a sense, it's justified by its practical applications. But nowadays, not so much because people don't solve equations that much anymore to do engineering. They use computer simulations, right? Or, or they go to Mathematica, yeah. Right, which is using finite precision finite precision mathematics, not not infinite precision real numbers like you do when you have equations and you want to prove properties of the solutions of the equations. This is how things used to work, right? Or find an analytic solution to an equation. That only works for very simple systems that you can solve in a closed form mathematically. And um, that's disappearing into the past, right? People are more concerned now with calculating than they are with proving theorems. In that sense, I'm a dinosaur, you know. Well, in fact, we have a name for them in engineering. We call them keyboard engineers. (laughs) If they're presented with a problem, they don't go to the theory, which gives you depth and insight into what's happening. They go to a keyboard and try to work things out just to get a, a surface sort of answer. Yeah, and that's good enough for most practical purposes, right? Yes. Instead of messing around with very complicated equations and trying to find an analytic a closed form solution, you simulate the system and uh, and see how it behaves. And you change the design a little bit to see if it behaves better, more like what you want. So that's a, a new paradigm that the computer enables us to do. So you can argue that the, the omega number doesn't exist. And also it deals with the question of an infinite amount of time for the calculation. Will the program halt if given an arbitrary large amount of time? 
Now, computers will not last for an arbitrary amount of time, right? They'll break, yes. or the Earth will freeze, or the sun will go nova. It's, a, it, it's like talking about unicorns or, or flying horses. Let me tell you a pushback that I got from the idea of unknowable. I mentioned, um, and I, I, I'm a big fan of your proof that elegant numbers are unknowable. I think it's very, very insightful. It's, it's beautiful. It's a very simple proof also. It's a simple proof, and I think, according to Paul Ergos, it would probably go into God's book as the as the simplest explanation of, of something. Thank you. That's the nicest thing you ever said to me. Most people prefer the <laughs> omega number, fascinates people. A religious person once in Vienna told me that he viewed it as, um, as a step closer to God because it shows something that it, the mind of God, there is a numerical value, but we can't get it, right? Yes, well, I think also that your your omega, your work on the omega number, as as is referred to as uh, Chaitin's number, it also belongs in in God's book. So it's it's also beautiful. Oh, thank you, Jack Schwartz. Though he he never liked my work on the omega number. He he liked the proof that you can't prove that a program is elegant. Oh, really? Yeah, and I greatly admired him. I still dwell, and we're going to in a subsequent podcast get deeper into. Uh, Chaitin's constant, or what you call Omega's number. Here's the pushback that I got back, uh, from this, Greg, is that I mentioned this proof of your proof of elegance, mm-hmm. uh, that elegance was unknowable to somebody. And they say, well, that doesn't mean it's n- unknowable. It means only that it's non-computable. And I guess my response was, yeah, non-computable, does that equate to unknowable? Uh, I, I think that that's the assumption here. And w- what's your take on that? Well, there's no program to calculate it. There's no way to prove it. So I don't know in what sense. Now, for all practical purposes, you can determine, for example, whether uh, a program is elegant. You run a lot of, it's like the halting problem. If you limit the amount of time to some reasonable amount, like one day of calculation, which is certainly a lot, you just run it for a day and you see whether it halts or not. And if it hasn't halted, you just assume it's never going to halt. For all practical purposes, that may be a good answer. But if you don't put a time limit, now that's a mathematical fantasy then, you see. But mathematics deals with fantasies because they have clean, beautiful properties. You can prove theorems. So that mathematical fantasy has often served practical purposes in, for example, theoretical physics. So it's a a complicated issue. Um, It's a complicated issue. Now, for example, if you toss a coin a lot of times, almost certainly the result is algorithmically unstructured or random. It cannot be compressed into a smaller program. And you can even get estimates on how very probable this is. And it can be enormously high probability. So would you allow that as an argument to say that I'll toss a coin and get a lot of zeros and ones? You do it a reasonable number of times, not just three times. And then you most probably it will be very close to maximum program size complexity, which would be n bits. There won't be any programs substantially shorter than n, and you can quantify that, you know, what the cutoff is. So something is almost certainly true, but uh, you could never prove it from a uh, mathematical axioms, which are less complicated than the number of bits of the sequence you're trying to show is random, is unstructured. So, uh, and there's also the question of which axioms are you using? My belief is that pure mathematics um, 
should evolve, should be creative. You can add new principles. And in fact, during my lifetime, I've seen a number of new principles added to pure mathematics. So these are questions are all, uh, are all complicated to discuss. Like most philosophical questions, you know, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. And they're all good arguments. And you pays your money and you takes your choice, right? Yes, yes. So elegant programs, just to remind the listeners, an elegant program is the smallest program to achieve uh, some objective. There exists a smallest program, so that is the elegant program. Uh, you can also think of it as a, I'd like to think of it in terms of images. If you have a big image, what is the most that you can compress that image? And that would be the elegant program for the image. Greg, I know that you've you've spent a lot of time with your proof of that elegant programs are unknowable. Do you have a simple a simple explanation that you can walk through that people of modest education could understand? Uh, well, I, I try. <laughs> I, okay, let's give it a in try. In my experiment in autobiography, that's included in the uh, book Unraveling Complexity. By the way, there's another there's another fair shrift that they did for me when I was 60. This book was intended to be for my 70th birthday, but it uh, dragged on a number of years. So it got published when I'm 73, I guess, or 72 when it was published. Uh, so there are two fair shrifts, actually. So in the attempt at an autobiographical essay, it was, I have a 14-page autobiographical essay in Unraveling Complexity. I, I go through what I see as the essential ideas in the proof. I, 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 I've often tried to prove it uh, t- when I'm invited to give a talk at a university. And um, I have a, a funny test for whether I explained it well. When I explain it well, people laugh when they realize the paradox of how the proof works. People laugh. And when people just stare at me with glazed eyes, obviously... Or, or, the, or they don't laugh, it means I didn't explain it well. So let me see. I can try to give a even simpler explanation than is in the experiment in autobiography. Well, Greg, now I'm paranoid. I don't know. I hope I laugh after your explanation. We'll, well see. Okay, so here's the idea. Let's say you have a provable, means provable from a fixed set of axioms and rules of inference, right? This is a formalization of axioms for mathematics. Uh, and Hilbert thought there would there would be one system that all mathematicians could agree on, and so once you've taken all the subjective element out, it's like a computer program. You just run through all possible proofs, you check which which ones are correct, you filter out the correct proofs, and that way you get all the theorems, all the theorems of mathematics. It would be if Hilbert had come up with a formal axiomatic theory for all of math. Okay, so now whatever the system you're looking at, with whatever the axioms and rules of logic. Uh, it can be implemented as a computer program. It's sort of the proof-checking algorithm, and which always gives an answer, the proof is correct, the proof is incorrect, to an infinite runtime algorithm that just generates all the proofs in order of the size, uh, all the theorems in order of the size of the proofs, is but a small step. Uh, so you just look at the size in bits of either the proof-checking algorithm or the algorithm, actually, it's more correct to say the algorithm that runs through, checks all possible proofs and gives you all the theorems. Okay, and and you look at the size in bits of this. This is the algorithmic information content or the complexity of that that formal axiomatic system you're studying to see what it can achieve. 
if I remember right, you just you step through numbers one at a time and check if um, check if it, it's meaningful or not. You, right? You you check through all possible proofs one at a time, and those correspond to numbers. Is that is well? They they correspond to strings of characters in the alphabet. You can also just go through the tree of all possible proofs. That's another way to get all possible theorems and one by one, uh, endless computation. So. This, this thing will require a certain number of bits. That's sort of the bits of axioms you're using in, in this version of mathematics, which people thought they would have a definitive version of. So let's say the program that does this, either the proof checker or the one that runs through the tree of all possible proofs or the one that checks all possible theorems, all possible proofs in size order and gives you all theorems. Let's say this is n bits, whatever that is. So now you start running through all possible theorems until you find a proof that a program that is substantially more than n bits long is elegant, which means it's the smallest program that calculates the output it does. Okay, so the eleg- you, you, you want to see if this, if your, your formalization of mathematics and all its principles um, enables you to prove that a program that is larger than the program which is the software embodiment of that of those mathematical principles of that formal axiomatic system its axioms and its large moves of inference you keep running through all the theorems all possible proofs and all the theorems until you find a proof that a program that is substantially the bigger in bits than the number of bits for the software implementation of this process to run through all possible proofs and get all the theorems. So, and then what you do, you take that program, which is elegant, and you run it, and then you see what its output is, and this is your output. So what we have is a process, a program that is basically the number of bits in size of the number of bits of axioms in your mathematical theory. And we're using this theory to attempt to prove that programs are elegant, and we we keep looking through all, all the theorems until we find a proof that a string of zeros and ones, a finite string of zeros and ones that is substantially larger than the software implementation of your mathematical system is elegant. So then you run this program and its output is your output. Okay, This is a process you do that will come to an end and give you an output. And now look at this, this program that I've described in words. It has a number of bits, which is basically the number of bits for the software implementation of your your axiomatic theory. And it's giving you an output, which is the output of the first provably elegant program that is substantially larger than the number of bits in your mathematical theory. Now, this is a contradiction because this output that you've gotten, supposedly the elegant program was the, for this, you've proven the program was elegant from these axioms. And that means that this is the smallest, most concise program that can calculate the output that it does. But you've calculated with a substantially smaller number of bits because you found it by running through all possible theorems, all possible proofs in your mathematical theory. And by the construction of this paradox, the, you, you keep running this process until you prove that a program is elegant that has substantially more bits than the program, which is the software implementation of your mathematical theory. So now this has given you a smaller program than the supposedly elegant program to calculate this object. And that's impossible by the definition of elegance. 
So either you're proving false theorems or you can never find this program. If you only prove true theorems, the elegant program for, for the thing you calculated is, is, is substantially larger than the number of bits in the program that found this, uh, the proof of this, that this program is elegant. So you've, you've actually compressed the output from this supposedly elegant program even more into a shorter program. And that's impossible by the definition of elegance. So if you assume that only elegant programs can be proved to be elegant, in other words, that the theorems you're proving are true, you never find a proof that a program is elegant if it has substantially more bits than the software implementation of your mathematical theory. The only way you avoid the contradiction is if you, this, this process never finds a proof that this, this program that is substantially larger than your software implementation of your mathematical theory uh, is elegant. Okay, so, so in other words, any mathematical theory can only prove that finitely many programs are elegant. They have to be smaller in size than the software implementation of the mathematical theory. But there are an infinite number of elegant programs, you know, because uh, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah, because for any math, for any programming task, there is a most concise program for it. The problem is you're not going to be able to prove that you've got it if the number of bits in your program is larger than the number of bits in your mathematical theory. I don't know if this was understandable or not. It depends on the notion of a completely formalized objective, not subjective notion of mathematics. What I'm criticizing is not the ability of mathematics to do things. Gödel thinks that mathematicians are not limited by his theorem, but they can directly intuit facts from the platonic world of ideas. Uh, so this incompleteness result that I've given you only applies to totally formalized, computerized uh, mathematical theories. But Gödel doesn't think it applies to human mathematicians, in fact. So, but to be able to to say what you can prove and show that there are limitations, you have to give a very precise definition of the methods you're allowing in the proofs. And once you do that, you're in trouble because if it's n bits of methods that you're allowing for mathematical proofs, then elegant programs that are more than n bits long, uh, you'll not be able to prove that they're elegant. Does that sound more understandable? Yeah, no, it's, it's, so it's, it's a proof by contradiction. You assume that the elegant program um, detector was algorithmic and uh, then you showed that there was a contradiction in your assumption yeah well it's, therefore it can't yeah, exist yeah right nobody laughed so i guess i fumbled the ball oh <laughs> nobody laughed okay what was the joke did i missed it well it's the contradiction oh okay the contradiction okay maybe it was because of my familiarity with the uh with the proof i explained it badly no, no, I don't think so at all. I think that um, in my class, when I explain proof by contradiction, let me tell you my favorite example. It's the proof that all positive integers are interesting. Ah, uh, yeah, that's related to all of this stuff. That we've it is, it is. And so you've heard about this. Yeah, sure. So the idea is that if they are interesting, you, you assume the opposite. If they're not interesting, then there is a smallest non-interesting number. But hey, that's interesting. So Absolutely. That, that, that's the proof by contradiction. That's, that's, so. that's sort of similar because interesting number, if you want to define it carefully mathematically, is one for which there's a program to calculate it that's smaller than it is. Uh, if you want to have a concrete notion oh. of interesting. So an, un, an uninteresting number would be one that is, uh, whose numerical value is irreducible. And, and that, that's, exactly, that's exactly the proof. That's probably a, better than what I was saying. Yeah, that's, that, that's, you're right. That's, the right. that's the way to explain this. Yeah, you've taught it to real human beings. 
uh, that's a very good that's a very good explanation because then the next step from that to get to my incompleteness theorem is to say well what does interesting mean and one good definition of interesting is an interest an interesting number is one that stands out because there is a more concise definition of it or more precisely a program that is substantially smaller than its numerical value that calculates it that's uh, some way it stands out from the run of the mill numbers and the run of the mill numbers are ones that whose numerical value is a incompressible or irreducible string of bits. So you can, you can sort of go step by step from that paradox about the first, un, the smallest uninteresting number, which is ipso facto interesting, to a proof of an incompleteness <laughs> result, uh, very similar to mine. Okay, very interesting. Okay, a new topic. I wanted to talk to you about, uh, we're talking just in general about the unknowable. Roger Penrose, he recently won a Nobel Prize for his work with Stephen Hawking and black hole theory, uh, wrote a book called The uh, Emperor's New Mind. And he had a, he had a follow-up, which I think is The Shadows, Shadows of the Mind or something like that. But in the book, he says that creativity is non-computable. He uses your work along with Turing's work and Gödel's work to make an argument that creativity is non-computable and therefore is something which, if we're to pursue it by artificial intelligence, something that will never be done. Now, he he refers to uh, quantum as possibly the only non-algorithmic thing which occurs in nature. So he says all of this stuff must be due to, he, he posits of quantum tubules in our brain and quantum quantum collapse or something like that. And um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on whether creativity is computable or not computable, or do we know yet? Uh, yeah, I do have thoughts on this, and one or two remarks. One remark is that I did meet Penrose at Cambridge at a meeting. We were both speakers, and I went to him and I said, um, the reason you think that a machine is the reason you think that a machine can't equal human intelligence because you believe that we have a design, divine spark and computers don't have a divine spark? And he answered a trifle annoyed, I think. Uh, not at all. Yes. So. Um, well, he did, revert, he did revert to a materialistic uh, solution, yeah. which is quantum mechanical. So, yes. Yeah, I've been worried a lot about creativity lately when I started working on uh, biological creativity and I connected it with mathematical creativity. Um, there is this paradox, just like the first uninteresting number is ipso facto interesting. There's a problem with creativity, with having an algorithm for creativity, a pre computer program for creativity. The problem is that if you know how to do something, ipso facto, it's not creative anymore. Yes, and that's the problem with identifying creativity. One can have a creative spark and you explain it to somebody. They sit there and, and uh, rub their chin and say, well, that's obvious. Yeah, well, creativity is what we don't know how to do. And so it looks like it's a hard thing to program because if you try to program creativity, well, that just becomes something mechanical. And the frontier between what's creative and what isn't just moves a little forward. It's a problem. There could be a mathematical... I think that my attempts of a little toy model of biological evolution, this is a controversial point, is a first step in the direction of a mathematical theory of creativity. I believe that Gödel's incompleteness theorem and Turing's work on the 
uncomputability of the halting problem are baby steps. Well, they're big, big baby steps <laughs> in the direction of a theory of creativity. That's normally not how you view them, but I feel they feed into my little attempts at bio- looking at biological creativity with a painfully simplified toy model. So there is a paradoxical aspect to creativity. Now, you could have a mathematical theory of creativity that you, enables you to prove theorems about creativity, but is not implemented in software uh, that doesn't give you an algorithm for being creative. Because if it's an algorithm, mm. it's not creative, right? So, but you might be able to prove theorems about creativity. You see, like I can prove theorems that most numbers are random, but I can't, are unstructured. I can't produce individual examples that I'm certain are. So it might be that you could prove theorems about creativity, but it, the theory wouldn't give you a, a formula, a recipe for being creative, because once it does that, then it's not creative. You see, there's this paradox. Yeah, and also those theorems that you're talking about are kind of meta. You're using creativity to write theorems about creativity. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yes. And one of the important things is to define creativity uh, I know somebody that knows you. I'm not sure if you know him, Selmer Bringsjord, who said he met you, I, I, I believe, at, at a recent meeting. But he has something called the Lovelace test, which is a lot better than the Turing test. He says that a computer program will be creative if, and only if, that computer program does something which is outside of the intent or explanation of the programmer. And I think that that's a very deep, the Lovelace test is one that I believe that hasn't been passed yet. So it's going to be interesting to see if in the future of AI that we do have anything creative. Yeah, well, I think I met this this gentleman in Thessaloniki. Yes, I believe that was where he mentioned that he met you, yes. Yeah. Well, Turing says uh, he'll believe that a, a, a computer is intelligent if the computer will punish him for, for saying that the computers aren't intelligent. <laughs> okay. Now, see, I think that's funny. Okay. <laughs> okay. What, what did what did he mean by punish you? Come up and, and whack you across the head, or well, what did he mean by well, that? I guess Turing is referring to a notion of truth based on political considerations. You know, okay. people will say something's true if the society will fire you from your job if you disagree. You know, the other thing you mentioned in your book is. Uh, Tanani's uh, fee function model of consciousness, which I must admit I don't totally understand. Me neither. But in uh, don't you? Okay. It's complicated. Well, that's it's good. It is complicated. And in Christoph Cox, one of his uh, presentations about the theory, he he got the people in Silicon Valley mad because this was a report that I got from somebody that attended uh, Cox um, lecture. Uh, that they were mad that this was possibly non-computable, at least with the resources that we have now or the immediate future. So, it, I don't know. It seems to me that there's that there's who was it? Uh, I, it, it was Stephen Hawking. It says nothing you ever nothing is ever proven in physics. You just accumulate evidence, and so I think evidence is is accumulating insofar as the non-computability of some human attributes. At least that's my personal take. Uh. Yeah. Um, I had something I wanted to say. Okay, about uh, Tanani? Uh, yeah. I actually prefer, um, it's a complicated definition, and as it's, you would need to do immense amount of computing. It's, uh, you have to partition, or you have to look at all possible partitions of a physical system and calculate certain mutual informations. For, it's a horrendous exponential growth 
computation. Uh, I actually prefer, I know it's fashionable now, uh, I actually prefer the original approach in Chalmers' uh, book, uh, I, I believe, 1996, was it? The Conscious Mind? He, he has an idea similar to Leibniz's uh, monads uh, of panpsychism. Oh, yes. Everything has some degree of consciousness. It may be greater, it may be smaller. The maximum monad corresponds to God, whose consciousness is the largest possible conscious of everything, right? A rock doesn't have that much consciousness. So, but he's, he believes a physical system has n bits of consciousness if it has n bits of memory and processes these n bits. So that would mean that an on-off light switch would have one bit of consciousness and a human being would have a lot of bits of consciousness. You know, it's hard to have a cutoff, for example. If humans are conscious and the people who love dogs are certain that dogs are conscious, so is there a sudden co- place where consciousness blanks off as you go to more primitive life forms, bacteria, viruses, light switches? So it, it looks a little implausible from a philosophical point of view. It seems more that like it'll just be gradually less and less consciousness, right? And you can go in the other direction. You can have um, a corporation. Does that have a consciousness? Does the internet have consciousness? Does the whole universe have consciousness, which presumably would be God? Um, I actually, um, my latest and hopefully not last paper uh, is on consciousness. And it's just being published in a book in honor of one of my distinguished colleagues here in Brazil. But it's on my website. It's um, consciousness and information and then comma, uh, classical, quantum, or algorithmic, question mark. Because Chalmers didn't know that maybe at the time there weren't three, at least more than three definitions of information. There's Shannon information, entropy. There's, um, there's quantum information theory, which I maybe didn't exist in 1996 or was very incipient. And now it's a very big fashionable topic and there's algorithmic information. And, uh, I sort of, uh, I'm sort of looking at Chalmers, uh, is it 25 years later? So, it's an it's a philosophical essay. It's interesting. I've always looked at panpsychism as kind of a, a weird a, a weird philosophy. I'm wondering if there's any way that it can be tested. I I, I doubt it. It's going to be interesting to see if it can. Yeah. But it, it, the the posit is that consciousness is part of the universe, just like mass and energy and all of the other stuff. Well, you know, there are ide- ide- idealistic philosophies which which say that the universe is spirit, really, and matter is sort of an illusion. So that's sort of related to an idea that I've been backing, which is the universe is made from information, that that's the basic ontological basis. The normal view, if you dabble in metaphysics, is the universe is made from mathematics. That's a Pythagorean idea, that God is a mathematician. And I prefer to say God is a... All is algorithm. God is a computer programmer or a programmer. Uh, There's a book by a theologian, an Italian theologian, a priest, on this subject called Bitbang, La Nacita uh, della della Filosofia Digitale. Unfortunately, it's a wonderful book. Unfortunately, it's only in Italian. So it's it's saying that the universe is built out of information is like saying that the universe is is really built out of spirit or the universe is in the mind of God. It's not a material object. And the new version that physicists love is to say the universe is built out of quantum information. They want to try to get 
everything out of quantum information, including space-time, due to entanglement between qubits, for example. That's a fashionable topic. But in a way, we're, we're looking at an old idea, which is the universe is in the mind of God or the universe is spirit, and, and matter is it's a, idealism as opposed to materialism, which is why this theologian was interested and put together a wonderful book surveying all of, all of this work that unfortunately uh, I don't think anybody's translated. Maybe Google Translate could do a great job on it. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think that still has a long way to go. Chayton's number, one single number between zero and one, allows, under certain conditions, solution of every open problem in mathematics that can be disproved by a single counterexample. Many of these problems have large cash prizes for their solution, and we'll find out why, even though Chayton's number exists, many of these cash prizes remain unclaimed. I want to clear up something first of all. Stanford's Thomas Cover and Joy Thomas wrote a book that I used as the textbook for the graduate course in information theory called Elements of Information Theory. They refer to Chayton's magical mystery number omega. And this is in a very thick scholarly book. They call your number mystical and magical. Now, of course, in your writings, you do not refer to this as Chayton's number. You refer to it as a capital omega. Let me clear up something. There are people like Cover and Thomas that refer to this as Chaitin's number, whereas if you look at Wikipedia, they call it Chaitin's constant. Which one's correct? Chaitin's number or Chaitin's constant? It's um, it's a little worse than that. <laughs> it's worse than that, okay. Because you see, there isn't one halting probability omega. It depends on the computer programming language. Exactly. So the Chaitin's number varies in accordance to the computer program you're using. So right. therefore, calling it a constant doesn't seem to be no. appropriate. But it's, it's bizarre or fascinating properties don't vary. As long as the computer programming language you pick is a kind of a universal Turing machine, which allows very concise programs, a general purpose computer, which allows very concise the most possible concise programs. So you have to be a little careful what programming language you use, but there are an infinite number of programming languages which will give you a bona fide halting probability omega with, with all the madness in it or all the fun in it. So I think Wikipedia refers to Chaitin's procedure or something. Anyway, um, you know, this is a quibble, I think. In fact, in, in my books, I actually settled the programming language. I, I use a version of Lisp to uh, to write an interpreter for the programming language that I take as programming language I want to base the theory on. And then it's once you do this, it's a definite number with a definite numerical value that is maximally unknowable. Uh, by the way, in my first paper, I used a low case omega. My first paper was published in the journal of this, and it was published in the journal of the ACM in 1975. We've already ref in a previous interview referred to that paper and its title. Uh, I use a low case omega. O omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. You know, at a church in Europe, you'll see alpha such a year, omega such a year. That's when they began building it. That's when they finished building it. And there's omega and a micron. Uh, omicron is, is little omega and um, omega is big omega. Anyway, 
Robert Solovey, who at that time was working at IBM when I wrote that paper, with, where Omega appears for the first time, he said, oh, no, you don't want to use low case Omega because in set theory, uh, low case Omega stands for the set of, of, uh, of natural numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So use a big Omega. So henceforth, I took uh, Bob's advice. He's one of the best set theorists in the, on, in the planet. Uh, and it became capital Omega. And I was sort of surprised that some people refer to it as Chayton's number. I've even seen it in lists of uh, important mathematical constants, you know. Even though it's really not a constant. It's well, it's a, not a constant, a uh, right, unless you fix the programming language, which I actually do in one of my books. And also uh, it's, you know, the, the other constants that they give, they, they give the the numerical value up to a certain level of approximation. And, and mine is on that list simply because you can't give, well, you can maybe get a few bits of the numerical value, but at some point it becomes unknowable. Has anybody computed the first few uh, bits of Omega? Yeah, my colleague uh, Chris Kalude with uh, another professor at the University of Auckland have a paper, I think, called Computing the Bits of Omega or something. They pick a different computer than I do, but it's it's a good computer. It's a universal Turing machine, and it allows for the most possible concise programs. And they're able to, to, to determine, I don't remember, it was 40 bits of the number. And on the, the Leibniz medal that uh, Stephen Wolfram gave me when I was 60 in 2007, on one side it has the face of a medallion that Leibniz wanted his duke to coin in silver, which is about the binary arithmetic. Leibniz came up with binary arithmetic a long time ago. And he came up with the idea that the whole universe might be made out of information because uh, he shows some addition, some multiplication. And he says, imago, imago mundi, that's Latin for image of the world. And in the German version, it's uh, Bildung or Schopfung, something like that. I don't have much German. Which also means image of the it means image of the creation instead of image of the world. Uh, I think Leibniz intuited that it might be possible to make everything from zeros and ones. That's digital philosophy. Digital philosophy, okay. Digital philosophy, yeah, which uh, is a philosophical idea that I like to toy with. So the other side of the of the Leibniz medallion that Stephen Wolfram was kind enough to give me as a present for my 60th birthday has omega big omega on it and it has some bits the bits of the omega number that um, chris kalude and his colleague were able to calculate and prove were correct so uh, that's a contradiction because it in latin it says uh, the omega number is something that you can't can't calculate but at the bottom he gives some of the numerical value of one omega number is given so that's nice, a nice uh, paradox, which is always good. Well, here, here's a question that I have. I know that uh, omega, or Chaitin's number, is, is based on, it, the foundation is the Turing-Halting problem, which says that there can be no program written to uh, analyze generally another arbitrary program to say whether it halts or it runs forever. Wouldn't you have to, in a way, solve the halting problem 
for smaller programs in order to get Chaitin's number? Yeah, well, if you if you had the first n bits of the in, in base two of the numerical value of the halting probability omega, from that it's very straightforward but very time consuming to solve the halting problem for all programs up to n bits in size. So in a way, the halting probability omega is a very compressed form of answers to individual cases of the halting problem. Knowing n bits of the value of the halting probability tells you for two to the n individual programs, all the programs up to n bits in size, whether each one halts or not, as it's easy to see. One way to put it, since, you know, uh, from an engineering point of view, it's the maximal compression of the answers to individual cases of the halting problem. Yes. It's an irredundant representation. It's provably the best possible compression of all the answers of bits of the halting problem. Because you can, to solve the halting problem from all programs up to n bits in size cannot be done in less than n bits. So you get a paradox. And Omega does it in precisely n bits. So that is the best possible compression. It's like a crystallized essence of answers to the halting problem, the, the best possible irredundant compression of all the answers. And even though a few bits have been computed of Chaitin's number, it is advertised as unknowable. Yeah, because you can show that an n-bit an program can't calculate more than the first n bits, and an n-bit mathematical theory uh, can't enable you to prove what the more than the first n bits are. So it's logically and computationally unknowable. If the tool you're using has n bits, you're only going to be able to get at most n bits of the numerical value. And after that, all the rest, the infinite number of remaining bits, look just totally random and totally unstructured, and you, you, you'll never know them. That's fascinating. So it's, it's fun. I'm, 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 I'm surprised that it became such a hit, in a way. Uh, well, but think about that. When you tell somebody that there are all of these open problems in mathematics that require a single counterexample, uh, Goldbach's conjecture, uh, Kolatz's conjecture, Legendre's conjecture, these are all problems with big prizes, mm -hmm. big, big monetary prizes. And you have postulated in, in theory a number, Chaitin's number, omega, a single number between zero and one that solves all of these problems, at least in a philosophical realm. And that is, that is astonishing. That is mind blowing. That is, that is, that is something more extraordinary. As I mentioned, I think in the first podcast of any science fiction that I've ever read or watched. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, I hope it will inspire young people to engineering is great. Wonderful. Uh, I've, I've worked as an engineer, you know, Elon Musk is my hero. But uh, pure mathematics is also one of my loves, and um, maybe it'll inspire, uh, Omega will inspire some uh, young people to become mathematicians, pure mathematicians. And it may also give people an interest in philosophical questions instead of practical questions. Yes. There are always going to be a few of us who, who think, there are a lot of us who like to do things and practical things, and that's part of my personality too, but there's also in me, a side that likes beautiful mathematical arguments and these, the fantasy world of pure mathematics, which has this strange number glowing there, the omega number. Uh, and uh, we do need some people who do pure mathematics with, with no applications, at least maybe not for 100 years. 
And we also do need some people who think philosophically. And I think Omega is a stimulus. So it's, it's nice to have this, uh, this number. I, I didn't expect it to catch on the, the way it did. It takes, a, it takes, I wouldn't say complicated because I invented it, but it takes a mathematical theory that is, is non-trivial, you know, to, to understand exactly how you define the number and why it has the properties it does. I thought the business that you can't prove that a program is elegant would catch on more, but uh, people do, are interested in uh, philosophical questions and and even though uh, Omega is sort of a, a unicorn or a flying horse, it's a mathematical fantasy in the platonic world of ideas, it's caught on, which shows that we all have a taste for that kind of question too, which is good. You know, so it's, it's the human spirit is capable of doing both things, right? Practical things and impractical things, which may become practical, have practical consequences later. Yeah, I think the poster child for that is encryption involving large prime numbers and their factorization, which is used in most of the encryption that's used today. That was a mathematical theorem that laid around for a long time before somebody found out that, hey, we could use this for encryption purposes. Yeah, who would have thought that G.H. Hardy loved uh, number theory because he said it's purest of the pure, pure mathematics. He has a book that was shortly after, was written during the Second World War, I think. And he'd seen the First World War, and he hated things with practical applications because he said they would be used for carnage, <laughs> for slaughter. So he said, at least there's one subject which will forever be as pure as the driven snow because it's totally impractical, which is number theory. So now it's used for cryptography, for sending military messages, probably. I don't know. It's used. Oh, absolutely. For, yes. And it's used also for uh, banks, right? Financial transactions. So Hardy would probably be very disappointed, but it's, historically it's fun. It's, the same thing happens with algorithmic information theory. At least for me, it was purely philosophical. I was interested in incompleteness. Solomonoff was interested in more practical stuff, but it looked very difficult. And now, uh, what is it? Algorithmic information theory goes back to uh, the 60s, right? So what, what are we now? It's, um, it's 60 years later. Uh, Hector Zanil and his collaborators are using practical approximations to this ideal theory and for, for, for practical applications. Oh, this is the biggest joke of all. Um, <laughs> the halting probability omega is totally unknowable. It's uncomputable. But you can calculate it in the limit from below. You look at more and more programs, you see which ones halt. And that way, the halting probability keeps going up. Your estimate keeps going up. But it's very, very slow, this process. But in the limit of infinite time, you can calculate it in the limit from below. Well, the joke is that Hector de Zanil has proposed using this as a new cryptocurrency that he calls Otama, Otama coin. And this is a serious proposal because he says, he says that uh, Bitcoin, right, which is the most popular cryptocurrency, uses an immense amount of computing power really scary amount of computing power that didn't even exist before. But it's all going for, for this. It's not terribly useful computation except for this financial transactions, right? But um, what Hector Zanil has basically proposed is to calculate the bits of omega in the limit from below. And, and, oh and this, what an idea. this gives you a cryptocurrency. This gives you a cryptocurrency where the, what you calculate 
is very, very useful. It's useful in the way that Marvin Minsky pointed out, that it, um, it tells you the best theories for things, the most concise programs for things. And that can be used for, predict, for making predictions. Well, you know, one of, one of the interesting things about this, uh, talking to George Gilder, who is kind of an economics guru and a, a forecaster of the future, says one of the problems with Bitcoin is the amount of value that you can get out of it is fixed. So there's only a certain amount of gold that can be mined from Bitcoin software. If we use the Omega number as a basis for a um, for a cryptocurrency, there would be no limit, would there? It would just get harder and harder and harder to to mine the mine the gold. Right. The further you go, and and the results of those computations are actually useful. Whereas in Bitcoin, you're spending an very, very large amount of computing power, right? Mining Bitcoins. Uh, and yes. uh, it's only useful for Bitcoins. It's not useful for anything else. So um, Hector thinks that's a terrible waste. At any rate, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not terribly interested in practical applications, not when I'm thinking about mathematics and Omega and everything. But the fact that, yeah, the fact that it's a new, proposed as a new cryptocurrency, I think is fantastic. It's just a lot of fun. Who would have guessed? It is really interesting. But you, you have know, to wait 60 years, though. When I was publishing these papers, if I had to do practical work, I wouldn't have been able to do that research. 60 years later, this is practical research based on the Omega number. Boy, that is that is just a fascinating, fascinating idea. You know, one of the, uh, I think, the, 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 the poster problem for the Turing halting problem is Goldbach's conjecture, which says that every even number can be expressed as the sum of two primes. And if one had a halting problem or a halting oracle, if you will, you could solve Goldbach's conjecture very easily by looking for a single counterexample or showing that no counterexample exists forever. Do you ever think that something like, do you ever think that Chaitin's number can be calculated to a precision which would allow for the proof or disproof of something like Goldbach's conjecture, which which is a relatively short program? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's relatively short as computer programs go, but there are a lot of programs up to that size, you know, it grows exponentially. So the calculation yes. gets quite horrendous. And the algorithm that extracts that tells you, given the n bits of omega, that tells you for each of the programs up to n bits in size, which one holds and which one doesn't. If you do the obvious algorithm, its runtime is worse than super exponential. It grows as the busy beaver function of n. So, oh gosh, it looks tough. By the way, uh, there's the there's an another interesting example of a famous mathematical problem called the twin prime conjecture that there are infinitely many prime numbers uh, that are two consecutive odd numbers. Yes. And it certainly looks to be the case. In fact, there are very good estimates that seem empirically validated uh, formulas that tell you the distribution of twin primes, how many there are. can't be proven, but there's a formula which gets more and more accurate the more twin primes you calculate. So it not only looks like there are infinitely many, but even we know the distribution, at least in the sense that an empirical scientist knows anything. But the question of whether the infinitely many twin primes is not equivalent to a halting problem. Yes, it can't be solved with a Turing oracle. Could yeah, it? there's no finite counterexample. So you can't have a program searching for a counterexample. And then if the program doesn't halt, you know there is no counterexample. So Omega doesn't solve all problems. Now, there are extended versions of Omega 
there's a hierarchy of omegas that look at more and more abstract mathematical questions. So omega wouldn't allow, knowing the bits of omega wouldn't allow you to solve the twin prime conjecture positively or negatively. But there's a thing called the jump of the omega number that sort of would. So you have omega, omega prime, omega double prime. So omega prime assumes that you have a halting oracle. Exactly. That's correct. And, and so you have this omega prime that includes a halting oracle. But right. if you have a halting oracle, then uh, you, you have to have a meta halting oracle that looks at regular computer programs with the regular halting oracle. So the Turing halting problem becomes more and more problematic. And in, but in each case, you have a more and more sophisticated things that you can do with Omega, which is, which is just astonishing. But you would need an oracle to do those things. Yes, yes. And those are probably not computable. I'm wondering if there's any way to get a, to get a handle on what Omega Prime is. Yeah, well, a colleague of mine in Buenos Aires, Veronica Becher, and I, mostly at her initiative, worked on uh, Omega Prime and even on Omega Double Prime. Another way to define omega prime is it's, it's not the probability that a program will halt. It's the probability that a program will produce a finite amount of output instead of producing an infinite amount of output. These are programs that never halt or that may halt or may not halt. A program that halts obviously only produces a finite amount of output. So the, problem, the probability that a program generated at random uh, produces an infinite amount of output, I mean, uh, sorry, a finite uh, amount of output is omega prime. And omega double prime is the, if you, you talk about programs calculating only one, two, three, four, five, it's the probability that a program produces all but a finite number of, uh, of the positive integers. So the whole, these are programs that calculate only one, zero, one, two, three, four, five. And the question is, the numbers that it doesn't calculate, will that be a finite number of no numbers or will it be an infinite number of numbers? That's omega double prime. This was work mostly done by Veronica Becker and students of hers, but I participated a little bit in that work. And I, by now it's probably been generalized and extended in all directions like happens in pure mathematics all the time. Well, that's the thing. You know, omega itself is, is mind-blowing, but the fact that there's a regress into omega prime and omega double prime is... Uh, is hyper mind blowing, if you will, and it goes on and on, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, this happens also. This hierarchy of things that are more and more unknowable. There's the normal computer. There's a computer that has an oracle for the halting problem. Then there's a computer that has an oracle for the computer that has an oracle for the halting problem, and it goes up and up. Yes. So this is related to the. It's a sort of a hierarchy like Cantor's theory of infinities. There's uh, infinity of the integers, infinity of the reals. And for any infinity, there's a bigger infinity, which is the infinity of all subsets of the previous step. So you have a hierarchy. And dare I say that this is the notion maybe that you can only approach God in the limit. Uh, I think Cantor was interested in this question. Well, in fact, I believe that Cantor attempted to make an uh, audience with Pope Leo XIII, I believe it was Pope Leo XIII, about his theory of transfinite numbers. He never got to the Pope, but he got to one of his, uh, one of his subordinates because he thought, he thought about the theological implications of his theory of infinite. Absolutely. I, I regard Cantor's theory of infinities as uh, a mathematical theology. It's, it's beautiful stuff. It's also paradoxical. 
And uh, apparently Cantor thought that God was speaking to him. He felt he was inspired. In a way, anyone who is creative uh, sounds like uh, you know God is speaking to us, right? In stuff, in mathematics, that I would say is discovered, not invented. You feel you're you're touching us a, a reality beyond normal reality, right? Yes. And this is in that um, BBC Four ninety-minute uh, documentary, uh, "Dangerous Knowledge," talks about this. It was funded by the Templeton Foundation, so it's a little okay. Daring. I'm not familiar with this. What what is the name of Dangerous it? Dangerous Knowledge. Uh, if you go to my website, Dangerous Knowledge. It's on. Cantor, uh, Boltzmann, Gödel, and Turing, and um, for a while it 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 wasn't available on the web or anywhere else. Uh, but uh, it it is now on the web. I hope the fact that I put this on my website doesn't mean that they're going to be forced <laughs> to take it down. But uh, it's in five parts, and I give the links uh, on my website with the original poster that the BBC Four used this. I think it's a wonderful movie. The gentleman who made it, David Malone, actually went out to the places where all this work was done, to all these places, and also in some cases to the cemeteries where these amazing mathematicians or philosophers or theologians, whatever they are, physicists in case of Boltzmann, are buried. So maybe maybe it's not obvious that when he talks about one of these thinkers, he's actually showing you where he worked and maybe where he's buried and Things like that. So it's it's like a travel. It's like a mathematical uh, travel documentary. It's it's quite a fun uh, fun film. I've always found that interesting. We know what these people do, but not who they were. And I think visiting the grave sites kind of uh, kind of tells us who they were. I visited Gödel's and von Neumann's grave sites at Princeton. You did? Oh, they're buried at Princeton. I didn't they're know both that. Very buried in the cemetery. That's a short walk from the Princeton University. I see. Is Einstein buried there also? Do you no, know? Einstein insisted that he be cremated and the ashes be scattered at an undisclosed location. Really? Okay. I didn't he know didn't that. want to, to leave a shrine. I also visited Gödel's uh, home, which is near the cemetery. It's in a poor part of town. Von Neumann had a home that I never visited, unfortunately. I only found out where it was. It's in the wealthy part of Princeton. And they're together in the same cemetery, rather rather close to each other. Anyway, I visited Gittel's home, and um, the people who were renting it from the current owner let me in, and they showed me things that were left there from uh, from when Gittel was the inhabitant. Uh, for example, he had soundproofing put in because noise distracted him enormously, and his wife had a shrine to the Virgin Mary uh, in the backyard, which was still there. And in fact, their home was in the neighborhood, which when they bought the home were Italian laborers, people who did construction work, I think. It was in a relatively modest part of town. Um, Gettel didn't marry a professor's daughter. She, he married a woman he fell in love with from comparatively humble origins, and I think she felt more comfortable. Also, it was a Catholic neighborhood, whereas Princeton, of course, is uh, some form of high Protestantism, I, I believe, or was at that, at that time. Yeah, well, certainly Princeton was founded on the Protestant ethic. So, yeah, and boasted of a number of uh, evangelical presidents for a while. Ah, that so, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's true of a lot of the uh, a lot of the universities. They were they were founded uh, based on Christianity, but they have they have strayed from that task as time goes on. 
one notable, two notable examples are Oxford and Cambridge. Oxford was for teaching yes. priests, Catholic priests. And there was a schism, so a group went off and founded Cambridge. Okay. This was a long time ago, probably something like 500 years ago. That's fascinating. Well, Professor Chaitin, this has been this has been a delight talking to you. We've been talking to uh, Professor Gregory Chaitin uh, today about a number named after him. We also went into some other topics, but Chaitin's number, uh, referred to as Omega, that's what he calls it, and Cover and Thomas in their classic textbook Elements of Information Theory referred to it as Chaitin's magical mystical number omega. We did not have the time to go into the details of Chaitin's number, but we will give some uh, links to some of Professor Chaitin's lectures where he explains this uh, this incredible mind-blowing number. And so until next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.